God created the artist who would be creating his work. Now, this is fascinating as we study the tabernacle and everything in it. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembrick. I'm Janice. And welcome to Bible Discovery TV, formerly Quick Study. I want to tell you that we're going through the Bible again. This is absolutely stunning. We are in Exodus and we're learning about this. So with us today is Corey and Ryan. Corey, what's going on? So today I'm going to be focusing in on the role or the meaning of the Ark of the Covenant. Ryan? Today I'm responding to this viewer question. Is God slow to anger as passages like Exodus 34, 6 teach? Or is his wrath quickly kindled, as Psalm 2.12 says? All right. That's very good. Look forward to that, both of you, coming up a little bit later on. Janice, what are you doing? segment is called Doing Our Part. All right. Doing Our Part. So get your Bible out. Get your Bible guide out. If you don't have one, we'll tell you how to get one in a minute. And let's listen to what God is teaching us and say. Exodus 36, verses 1 through 7. And Bezalel and Aholiab, and every gifted artisan in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding, to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary, shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. Then Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab, and every gifted artisan, in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stirred to come and do the work. And they received from Moses all the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him freewill offerings every morning. Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing. And they spoke to Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. So Moses gave a commandment, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done, indeed too much. Exodus chapter 36, verses 1 through 7. Exodus 33 to 36, that's what we covered today as we continue to read through the Bible. It becomes very, very interesting, I'll tell you right now. Offerings were meant to be given by free will, according to the Bible. People choose to give to God because they understood what God had done for them. Now, in ancient times, God delivered Israel out of Egypt, and the people were grateful for the miracles that God had done. Now, today, we have been given eternal life. And words cannot describe our praise and worship to God for what he has done. Now, the giving environment was charged in ancient times, but today it's even more charged as we begin to understand that God has made a way for us to live forever. Eternal life does not begin when we die. Let's understand that. It begins now. As soon as we are 
born again. As soon as our spirit wakes up, our eternal life was born. Now, this is why the Bible says that we must be born again. John chapter 3, when he's explaining this to Nicodemus. When we are physically born, we are not born again. But when we begin to make decisions about right and wrong, who God is, then we have the choice to be born again and choose God. Now, that's what the Bible says, and I agree with the Bible. So we need to say, okay, Lord, I choose you and make him Lord of our life. Now, if you have a Bible guide, we're going to be talking about offerings and eternity. We're going to talk about things that we don't understand in this life, but we look at beyond. This is a Bible guide. If you want your copy, I would suggest that you write to us, call us, or go to Bible Discovery TV and click on it. BibleDiscoveryTV.com and click on it. It'll take you to a page where you can download this. And uh, it's just like we printed it. It's, it's wonderful and it's great. And uh, we will be ready to go with you. Let me tell you right now, in Offerings and Eternity, you can join us as we go through the Bible. Today, Exodus 36, 1 to 7, really haven't studied this before. We need to pray and ask the Lord to help us. So, Father, we come before you today and we pray in Jesus' name that you would help us speak to our hearts and talk to us. Lord, the thing is, we don't want to read into the Bible, but we want to read from the Bible. So the Bible has that opportunity to change us in Jesus' wonderful name. And we said together, amen and amen. You're seconds away. If you want to download this, you're seconds away, BibleDiscoveryTV.com. As we go through the Bible, we learn some interesting things. Here is the first verse of chapter 36. And Beziel and Ahoylab and every gifted artisan in whom God, or the Lord, had put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work, all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary, shall do according to all that the Lord has commanded. Okay, what does this mean? What, I mean, how does this work? Well, God commanded that the artist begin the creative work on his kingdom. He still does this today, by the way. God has given us a mind to do his work his way. Very important. Because a lot of people, let me tell you what they do. They get excited about it and they do God's work their way. It doesn't work out. And then they say, well, I thought God told me to do your will. He did. But we do God's work God's way. Remember that. We do God's work God's way. And that's going to involve some patience. It's going to involve some work. It's going to involve some concentration and some study on God, some, a lot of prayer. But we do what God commands his way, beloved. If you're an artist, musically or any other way, you know that you, and some people say this, the artist has to meditate on, well, the artist has to pray and seek the face of God as he constructs and builds, becomes very important. Same with musicians and same with songwriters. Very, very important. Okay, let's go on to chapter 36, verse 2. Then Moses called Beziel and Ahoylab and every gifted artisan in, whom's, in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stirred to come and to do the work, and they received from Moses all the offerings which the children of Israel had brought for the work of service of making the sanctuary. 
So they continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. Isn't that something? Now this brings me to this point. God supplied for his kingdom through giving. God supplied it. Remember, God has called us to support his kingdom. God has called us to put support in his kingdom. The kingdoms that live with the Lord. These are the kingdoms that grow with God. We need to support them, beloved. This becomes very important. Let's remember that. Having remembered that, watch this. You're going to love this. Exodus 36, 4-7, many know it. Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing. And they spoke to Moses, saying, The people bring much more than enough. The people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord commanded us to do. And so Moses gave a command, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man or woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing. Did you hear that? They were giving too much, and so they had to be backed off. For the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done. (laughs) Indeed, too much. Boy, those times were different, I'll tell you. See, Moses said that the people had done their part by giving no more than was needed. Okay? God gives us everything we, very important, need for what he has called us to do. Need. Need, need, need. Did you get that? Need. The big difference between want and need. There's want and then there's need. What does God need? Because that's the only thing of interest to the Lord. Keep that in mind. Beloved, we need to pay attention to this because as God speaks to us, who are leaders and who are people who give, we need to get ourselves focused on not the money, but what they need. And there'll be different ways that that is accomplished. But God gives us what we need. And so we pray, in this ministry, I pray, Lord, give us what we need. I don't, you know, we want a lot of things, but we need the material for your kingdom, Lord. It's your kingdom. It's not anybody else's kingdom, not mine or anybody else's. It's your kingdom. That's what we need to be consistently preaching and teaching the word of God daily on this program, across this land and across the world. What we need, help us to do that, Lord. In Jesus' name, we got to do that. Now keep that in mind because. As we focus on this, there's a lot of things going on right now. A lot of things going on. But the people who truly believe the Lord for what he is doing, and they need to fulfill that, that will be done. God will use people to give to that, and that will be done. Maybe you're one of them. Pray about it and ask the Lord, because the Lord is making decisions right now on what to do and who to do it with. Jesus Christ spoke to us and told us not to be afraid, not to be troubled by these times. This is the beginning of the end. This is the beginning of God's final reconciliation with the world. God is going to make things change in our lives, and this is very important. He has selected you and myself to live in this time, and I find that absolutely amazing. Thank you.
Well, it's time now to carry on with our Bible study. And today I'm responding to a viewer question. And she asks, Ryan, I'm wondering if you can answer a question I have about a questionable contradiction in the Bible. I know there are no contradictions in the Word of God, only our insight is limited. My problem is in regard to God's anger. Psalm 2.12 states God's wrath is quickly kindled. But when we compare this to Exodus 34.6 and Numbers 14.18, it says God is slow to anger. I'm confused. Is God's wrath different than anger, or are they the same? If they are the same, I'm confused as to the apparent contradiction. Thank you for your blessed help, Eowyn. Well, you know, this is a really great question, Eowyn. So let's see if, that we, can, if we can figure this out. Although the Bible consistently portrays God as long-suffering and slow to anger, it seems that Psalm 2.12 brings this into serious question, as it says that the wrath of God is quickly kindled. As the English Standard Version puts it, Kiss the Son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. When dealing with apparent difficulties in the Bible, it's always wise to consult other major Bible translations to see how they render the same passage. In this case, when we compare the ESV with other translations, this verse comes across somewhat differently. For example, rather than God's wrath being quickly kindled as in the ESV, the King James Version says that God's wrath is kindled but a little. In the same way, the New International Version, like the ESV, says that God's wrath can flare up in a moment. But Young's literal translation says that God's wrath burneth but a little. Though these translations are using very similar words, they are applying them differently, giving two vastly different meanings. Putting it into plain English, the ESV and NIV seem to portray God's patience as small, while the KJV and Young's literal translation portray God's wrath as small. The question is, which interpretation is correct? Actually, there is a third way these words could be put together. It may be translated as God's wrath is kindled in a little time. Notice that this translation says nothing of the nature of God's wrath, only that it will happen in a short time. So then, which of the three interpretations is correct? Is God's wrath quickly kindled, kindled but a little, or is it kindled in a little time? From the context of Psalm 2, it is very clear that the ESV and NIV's apparent portrayal of God as quick-tempered is not supported. For example, this psalm is all about Jesus Christ's messianic earthly reign, which is still in the future. This means that God's wrath spoken of in this psalm against the unrepentant has yet to be unleashed. So rather than God's wrath being quickly kindled, he has been and continues to be extremely long-suffering regarding this judgment, allowing time for repentance. Also, this long grace period is consistent with how God dealt with rebellions in the past, such as the global flood and Sodom and Gomorrah. Time and time again, the Lord waited patiently for people to repent, but when they refused, he had no choice but to pass judgment. Also consider the fact that Psalm 2 itself was written as a warning to those who would oppose Christ. This is a great mercy in itself. God, like he has always done in times past, is issuing forewarning long before he takes action. In light of this, it seems best to understand the Hebrew of Psalm 2.12 to mean that God's wrath is kindled but a little, or perhaps kindled in a little time. Since both of these interpretations say nothing of God's patience, there is absolutely no contradiction. God is long-suffering, and no biblical passage says otherwise. 
So to resolve this apparent contradiction, we looked at other major translations of the Bible to see how Psalm 2:12 was being translated in those versions, which was, as you saw, quite different. And based on the context of Psalm 2, we were able to determine that the quickness or shortness spoken of isn't referring to a quick temper, but rather to God's wrath being small or His wrath being unleashed in a little bit of time. So God is slow to anger, and no biblical passage says otherwise. Now I really want to thank you, Ewan, for writing in, and I do want to recommend to you and to everyone watching to check out my full response to this question on our website at BibleDiscoveryTV.com, which was a lot more in depth. As a matter of fact, if I hadn't edited this article down for time, my segment today would have been around 15 minutes long. So this three-minute segment today was really just the highlights. So please do check that out, as I also give some helpful tips along the way on how to study any passage in the Bible. People don't understand a lot of times, and Ewan is, uh, of course, part of our regular prayer meeting on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. But they don't understand that we have to edit this down because we have to fit everything into 28 minutes and 30 mm -hmm. seconds. Uh, so when we're on the internet and we're live, we can do whatever we want. <laughs> but I would encourage you to check us out on the internet and check us out in those ways. What a beautiful name, Eowyn. Beautiful. It is beautiful. awesome, and she is a great, great prayer warrior. And I encourage her, if she's watching today, make sure that uh, if you get a chance, join us. The prayer meetings are great. Okay, Corey, you're up. All right. So today we are taking a look at the Ark of the Covenant, its meaning and its role and function in the tent tabernacle and later on in the Temple of Solomon. But we're not just doing it by looking at the Bible today. We are going to be comparing it to the uh, culture that the Israelites would have known, the Egyptian culture that they were coming out of, to see what we can learn about how God was speaking to Israel. Take a look. At Sinai, God gave instructions to Moses on how to build the tent tabernacle as a sacred space. Within the tabernacle, there was to be an even more sacred space, the Holy of Holies, that would contain a gold-covered box, the Ark of the Covenant. To understand what God was communicating to his people, it's necessary to look at their culture of the time, that of Egypt's new kingdom. When we do, we discover that Egypt had many parallels to the Ark. The Bible does not call the Ark of the Covenant by the same word as the Ark of Noah or the Ark Basket of Baby Moses. Instead, it uses a word that means coffer, chest, or coffin. In Egypt, a coffin wasn't just a place to inter a dead body. It acted like a substitute body for the spirit of the deceased, a place they could return to. There are Egyptian boxes that were ceremonially wrapped in a red cloth, just like the Ark was. And with the discovery of the undisturbed tomb of King Tutankhamun, a perfectly preserved Anubis chest was revealed. These chests carried the organs of the deceased in the funeral procession to the tomb. It was a wooden box covered with gold inside and out, like the Ark. It was carried by poles attached to its bottom, its lid was referred to as the mercy seat, and a statue of Anubis sat proudly on top all features of the Ark of the Covenant, except for the idol. Rather than an idol, the Ark of the Covenant had two cherubim, angelic beings with outstretched wings that met together over the mercy seat. From between the cherubim, God's presence would meet with Israel. Protective winged creatures also created sacred space in Egypt. There are multiple examples of Egyptian winged goddesses, protectors of the divine with outstretched wings whose tips touch. So what does all of this mean? 
mainly that God was using cultural imagery familiar to the Israelites to speak with them. Rather than being just another one of Egypt's gods, God was above all. Sacred, as represented by the boxes, the tabernacle structure, and the winged cherubim. Present, to speak with Israel, as represented by the mercy seat. And greater than any image, there was no idol image of God. The Ark was also a type of reliquary, a place to put sacred things. Inside the Ark at first were the tablets of the law given to Moses on Sinai. These tablets were likely flakes of stone that measured around the same size of one or two man's hands they needed to fit within the Ark. Placing them inside the Ark corresponds with the Near Eastern practice of placing a treaty at the feet of the chief god of the people. The Bible tells us that the Ark was also known as the footstool of God. These comparative studies show us that God chose to use imagery that already symbolized issues of the divine to the Israelites, but he rearranged it to reveal himself. He didn't expect them to use his language right away. Instead, he spoke to them in theirs. So I just want to clarify here what I am not saying about the Ark of the Covenant. I am not saying that the Ark of the Covenant was just a copy of Egyptian religion with Israelite religions slapped on top of it. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying here is that God was using imagery and symbolism that the Israelites already knew and were familiar with, and he was turning it on his on its head. He was using it to say something completely different about who he was. So a lot like earlier this week where we spoke of the arrangement of the tent tabernacle and the camp around it and how that related to the military camps uh, in Egypt, this is God being merciful and speaking to the Israelites in a way that they will understand, but making sure that his truth and who he is comes through that. So God speaks to us in a way that we have the best chances of understanding what it is that he says. I find that fascinating, Corey. Very good. Uh, and he does speak to us, and hopefully he's speaking to you today. Janice? Well, my chapter, Exodus 36, in my Bible is titled, The People Give More Than Enough. Hmm. There were some really interesting points here in this chapter. Uh, God says, everyone whose heart was stirred were, was to come and do the work. Aren't you glad that we're not all the same? Because God calls us you know, it's not our work for God that saves us. We could do everything in the world, but that doesn't earn our salvation. That work has already been done by Jesus, his shedding of his blood on the cross for us. But when our hearts are stirred, when we understand the gospel message of Jesus Christ and what that means for me, that my sins can be forgiven, that I can have eternal life with the Lord Jesus Christ, that he gave of himself so that I could be reconciled with God, my heart becomes stirred, and I, be, I become someone who wants to change. I want to be able to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what a Christian is. It's someone who follows Christ. And I do that by reading his word, by praying with him. And over time, it doesn't happen right away. Over time, my heart begins to change. My thinking begins to change. And it's not forcibly done. It's because my heart has been stirred. It's much like when, when you meet somebody, when you meet, when I first met Rod, and we didn't know each other at first, but, but as time grew and I recognized that I loved him and then we decided to 
become married and we were married together, this relationship begins to grow and, and you begin to change and grow and you don't hang on to the things that make you stubborn and he doesn't hang on to the things that make him stubborn. We change as we come together. And that's what happens in our lives. As we come together with God, we begin to change our lives in alignment with him, not because we're forced to, but because it's a love that God has stirred in our hearts. So why did I call this doing our part? We can see here that the people were told the material they had was sufficient. The workers were saying, whoa, we have too much. Tell the people to stop giving. My goodness, that is one thing that I don't think any pastor probably anywhere in North America that I have heard in the last several years saying, wait a minute, people, we've got way too many people that want to volunteer to work in the nursery. Wait a minute, wait a minute. We have enough audio people. We have enough ushers. We have way, whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't give, do we? We don't give of ourselves. And I know we're very busy people. But you know, when God stirs in our heart and he gives us different callings, different things that we can do, maybe we're too shy. We don't want to be a greeter. But maybe we're wonderful working with the little children in the church. Or maybe we can cook for a a potluck dinner that the church is having. Or I don't know, I can name things you know what God has placed in your heart to do. Maybe you have extra time that you can give to drive seniors to get groceries, or maybe you have extra money that you can give to a project, to a missions group. God has called us each uniquely, each different, just like this artisan, the artisans that he called to make the, the, the uh, things for the tabernacle and the temple and the, the garments for the priesthood. All these things God has placed in our hearts, you know. And if you don't, spend time with the Lord and ask him, God, what is it that I can do for the work of your kingdom? Isn't it a privilege for us to be able to be involved in the kingdom of God, in our weaknesses, in our strengths, working together? There is no job too little. There is no job too big. When God calls us to do something, he will give us, he will already give us, we already have what we need in order to move forward. Absolutely true. That is wonderfully said and beautifully done. And think that through because God is speaking to all of us and uh, we need to give what God says. But what God says to give, that's really important. Well, today at the end of the program, I just want to remind you, Signs of the Times, these are a collection of sermons that I put together. I taught them directly to camera just for you. You can get them online or you can go to uh, our website or you can actually go to the phone number and write us in the address and we'll send it to you. Today we need to pray. And as we pray, let's focus our attention and say, Lord Jesus, help me to give and to do as you have directed me in the name of Jesus Christ. 